Hello, this is Real Estate Insights, the podcast from Savills that never shies away from tackling the toughest stories in the property world. And today we're looking at one of the biggest of them all, climate change and the need to eradicate carbon emissions. It's something we've touched on before in other episodes, but now we're properly putting it under the microscope. The progress so far has been insufficient, but that is a government-level strategy and I think there is appetite to move forward. And we'll take a special look at a sector that's right in the front line of the challenge, agriculture. The rural sector in particular sort of has this slightly schizophrenic approach to carbon at the moment because we are both a source um, and also a potential sink of carbon. I'm Guy Ruddle and joining me to wrestle with these issues are a familiar face and a newcomer. The familiar face is Emily Norton, Head of Research in Savile's Rural Energy and Projects Division. When she's not doing her day job or being on Real Estate Insights with me, she somehow manages to find time to advise national and local government and be a director at the Oxford Farming Conference. Hello Emily, how are you? I'm really well Guy, it's a joy to be here. And the newcomer is Tom Hill, who is Director of Environmental Economics. He joined Savills this year to expand the environmental advisory offering of the company. Previously worked at the IPPR, the Institute for Public Policy Research. Tom, welcome to Savills and welcome to Real Estate Insights. Thank you very much. Right, so... I mean, I think we all know uh, that sort of the, the basic stuff about you know, needing to be at net zero for, in terms of carbon emissions by 2050. But Tom, how, how big a challenge is that? I know it's a big question, but how big a challenge is that for the real estate sector? And how prepared is the industry for that? So my take on this is that um, it's an incredibly important um, challenge that it's essential that we make this progress but at present we're quite behind the curve so if you look at the government's commitment to hit uh, net zero by 2050 so far and uh, most of the progress that's been achieved to date has been constrained to the power sector with most other sectors lagging quite far behind and that we're already behind in terms of the existing trajectories in terms of our carbon budgets. And that's um, the, the latest reports from the Committee on Climate Change suggest that there's, that lag is going to get much more significant going forward. So there's going to be a huge policy gap in the future that will present um, important challenges, but also opportunities to the sector. And property, I mean, it's a, it's a thing for the whole, whole society and the whole economy. Is, is property a particularly big producer of carbon, if you like? It's kind of up there as being one of the major... Um, kind of drivers and that happens in lots of different ways both direct and indirect so um, in terms of the direct that's everything from the energy that we're using in buildings and a lot of um, our buildings are quite um, drafty and energy inefficient um, compared to maybe some other um, countries um, within Europe and the other aspect is the um, the emissions associated with constructing these buildings the embodied impacts of carbon and are big and, and getting bigger as buildings become more efficient. And then there's all the sort of um, surrounding services that drive emissions as well. So, for example, um, all of the infrastructure and roads that connect buildings together and are driven um, by um, increased development. Emily, do you, do, do you agree with that? The point has been, I think, that a lot of the low-hanging fruit has been taken. That's certainly true. Mm. Um, but one of the interesting points is what you alluded to in your question, which is how we actually measure carbon emissions. And, and as a country, we measure them on the basis of what we produce here. 
the amount of carbon that's produced in this country um, through our activities. It's not about what we consume. So if we're importing things into this country, then um, the, the carbon that's related to that consumption is not measured in the same way. So it, it's a really tricky problem. We could say, well, to get to net zero, we simply stop producing things here uh, and ship it all overseas and just import stuff. Um, but that sort of doesn't get us anywhere near net zero in a, in a technical sense or in a moral sense. You know, we're just simply exporting our problems overseas. So there's a really big sort of, you know, yes, the easy things have been done, decarbonizing certain sectors, um, particularly in um, energy production. Great progress has been made. But how do we start to tackle the really more difficult problems, um, particularly to do with consumer behavior uh, and particularly to do um, with uh, things like food production, which we really should produce some of here, but always have a carbon impact? So when I was at IPPR, uh, one of the things that we were calling for there was um, an expansion of the consideration of net zero to move um, away from explicitly focusing on um, domestic or territorial emissions to also include a consideration of how we might get to net zero through consumption and also um, how we might get to net zero through extraction. So at the moment we have um, a commitment to maximise the economic extraction of North Sea oil, for example. So we want to dig up as much um, um, oil and gas as we possibly can, whilst at the same time trying to wean ourselves off um, using oil and gas. And there's a certain kind of conflict between um, those two goals, I think. Emily talks about uh, food production, which sort of leads us naturally and nicely onto agriculture. Um, and, you know, you've got this, you guys have got this report out right now, Rural Land and Carbon, uh, which talks about, you know, the uh, carbon production and the net, whole net zero thing in terms mainly of agriculture. How, where does the agricultural sector sit? Because, of course, it works both ways, doesn't it? You, agriculture produces carbon, but can also be, you know, a, a, a source of of absorbing carbon through forestry and things like that. It's why the rural sector in particular sort of has this slightly schizophrenic approach to carbon at the moment, because we are both a source um, and also a potential sink of carbon. So um, our colleagues across the um, Savills business and, and sort of property as a whole having this emissions problem is looking to rural land and forestry and peatland restoration, for example, to be somewhere where carbon emissions can be stored Yet the simple process of cultivating land in order to produce food and that, you know, inherent act of doing the thing that we need to stay alive, so producing food that we can eat, increases carbon emissions. And so we're in this sort of interesting situation where um, how do we become more carbon efficient in producing food and using those natural processes to create um, food, food for everybody and at the same time try and use our land in a way that meets those um, broader societal needs and um, to be a carbon sink. And, and figuring that out, you know, the mixed messages there, you know, you're both, you know, doing something really bad, but also potentially doing something really good. It, it's very difficult for the industry. And when you talk on the bad side, if you like, what's the what's the really bad bit? I mean, you know, there are lots of different types of farming. Are, are there, you know, there are different, there's, there's arable farming and, 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 and dairy farming and the like, but there's also, you know, organic farming and non-organic farming. Are there particular areas where, you know, farmers could be better? Absolutely. So uh, without wanting to characterise anything as being good or bad, because it's all serving a need and, and you know, we, we need to provide food for all consumers at every price point. Uh, and so sort of understanding the broader societal need to do that is really critical. We can't simply say, right, let's all go 
premium organic, that's the way to make this all happen because it doesn't reflect those um, broader market needs. Equally, um, within the whole spectrum of things, if you start to account for your carbon and look at where your carbon impact is coming from, it begins to give you ideas about how you become more efficient. And the simple thing that a lot of other sectors have realized as well is the, the sort of the carbon efficiencies also become monetary efficiencies. And, you know, the simple example being more energy efficient light bulbs. Uh, if you're using more energy efficient light bulbs, you're saving yourself money and you're also saving carbon emissions. Now, it's extending that kind of simple, straightforward thinking across the whole of an agricultural system. It's quite complicated, but also there becomes lots more opportunities to be more efficient in the way that we're using those energy intensive resources that sounds great uh, tom uh, you know that, that you can be you know uh, be a better business by being a, a more responsible business and we talk about that mm. a lot but you know if you look at this report and the virtual farm uh, that you've created and the you know the different things you could do with it actually the most efficient thing for carbon wise would be to turn the whole thing into a forest but you earn a lot less money doing that well, yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, the, the kind of study of economics is essentially focused on trying to work out um, what a, an ef- efficient um, distribution of uh, resources would be. And um, quite arguably, having it all as forest uh, wouldn't be um, a very efficient way of, of doing this. And one concern I have, I suppose, between in the emerging discourse around um, some of this um, ecosystem service conversation is... I feel like there's not a clear understanding of quite um, of the disparity between the demand for these services going forwards and the actual limitations of supply. So if you look at um, all of the sectors that are planning on um, basically continuing in a fairly business-as-usual kind of way, but uh, using offset or carbon offset to basically um, allow them to continue to do that, then I think we're going to find a problem that there's and the supply of offset will be massively um, overwhelmed compared to the demand for it. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, isn't it? Because, you know, it's quite comfortable, isn't it? Quite comforting as well to be able to say, oh, I'm, you know, oh, I'm, I know I'm using all that, you know, producing all this carbon, but I'm, I'm paying for a, 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 some trees to be planted over here or a bit more peat bog or something like that. Emily, it's, I think we've talked before about this, haven't we, about the, the, the need to be much more realistic about that. And, much, you know, there are harder choices. And much harder choices. And I think, you know, the observation around this modelling we did on the virtual farm, I mean, it's, it's 830 hectares of pretend Lincolnshire. And, you know, at the moment, it's growing food for people. And if you change that, the, the, you know, the model of it to be uh, not growing as much food, but like you say, just growing trees, um, the, the, the economic reality, the business reality of it is that it starts not making enough money to live on. So, you know, what rational business person would say, OK, that's a great idea. I'm going to be carbon neutral. Uh, or, or, or a net sink of carbon and provide that service to people, uh, but also completely destroy my livelihood and my ability to, to do that. So you're sort of tapping into this altruistic idea, which is pointless, hopeless, if we're really going to drive the change that we need. So there's this combination between carrot and stick. The price of carbon needs to be factored into these businesses so that we can make sensible decisions yeah. about how um, systems allocate where the carbon should be going to. And then we really need to understand where this baseline is coming to. Tom was saying at the beginning about this policy gap and trying to get the UK to net zero. You know, that implies quite a lot more policy to come through, more environmental baselines, more compliance. And we need to understand where all of that is going to go to before we can make effectively rational 
uh, decisions about how land should be used. It seems to me that a lot of the stuff that Emily just mentioned, first and foremost, requires a policy response. So if the current uh, set of policies that we have basically deliver a suboptimal outcome in terms of um, environmental impacts or um, social impacts, then what's needed is a, a change in policy that allows for the, the, the capture of, um, say, the impact of carbon to be uh, more fully integrated into the economic decisions that we make. And what does that mean in practical terms, Tom? It means basically pulling um, policies that um, essentially um, make it more profitable to essentially do the right thing. So, for example, to uh, so you can make more money out of farming in a way that produces less carbon emissions and you can make more money out of farming in a way that produce better biodiversity outcomes than you can if you just basically run the ground um, down or you, um, you produce a lot of emissions in the process. It's interesting that we're talking about policy, that sort of, you know, uh, regulation and that sort of thing from government. But there's a lot of pressure, isn't there, also coming from consumers and, and uh, uh, you know, activist groups and, and, and the like. Do, 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 are they less important, do you think, than... than than what government does? I don't think they are, Guy. It's, it, it's very difficult for sort of farming businesses to navigate this space at the moment because fundamentally a lot of the land use that you see, so if you look out uh, of your car window as you're travelling around the country, what you see the countryside being used for is, is really what it should be used for. So where you've got animals grazing um, grass, it's because that land is only really suited to growing grass. Where you've got trees growing in certain places, it's because that land is really suitable for growing trees. And where you've got sort of crops growing in fields, it's because the soil is suitable for it. So what we're saying is, you know, are, are we more concerned about how we use the land sustainably uh, and making the best choices for what things go where across the countryside? Or are we sort of going, well, look, sustainable consumption looks a bit different and we end up targeting certain sectors um, of uh, the, the food production industry Things like red meat, for example, um, which uh, are given a very bad press uh, in in climate change terms uh, and sort of demonising that. Whereas actually, for the vast majority of this country, those kind of land uses have very beneficial impacts, not only on carbon sequestration, um, but also on biodiversity and, and land use suitability. So it becomes a very, very difficult picture. And I can see why consumers are so motivated to do something when they feel that government or business or whoever it might be are not acting quick enough in response to the climate emergency and navigating the information available in this space is incredibly difficult it's so complicated which is where we come back again to the importance of uh, regulation and policy creating systems that make it easy for people to know that they're doing the right thing where do we sit in terms of measurement of all this stuff it particularly in terms of agriculture because you know in just in that last answer Emily you've talked about all sorts you've talked about beef farming so methane uh, there's there's uh, different types of growing stuff there's tractors there's this there's that there's movement of goods and things like it sounds like it I, mean, I can't imagine how you ever get to a point where you can really measure your carbon production so it's, it's an interesting question and lots of our kind of rural um, clients and, and you know, people involved in the industry uh, are asking this question all the time. You know, when is government going to tell us how to, to measure carbon accurately? You know, what information is going to be out there? And there are these international systems 
of uh, accounting for carbon, like I was saying um, a few minutes ago about, you know, we, we, we largely measure it on the basis of what we're producing and not what we're consuming. And yet for a lot of agriculture, what we consume is really important, particularly in the sense of nitrogen fertilizer. So when I mean, you buy nitrogen fertilizer to help crops grow and get the yield that we need in order to produce food profitably and enough food for everybody to eat, that there's a lot of energy in that nitrogen and that has a really, really big impact on it. So there's two ways to look at it. One, masses of information impact um, and you can get a very precise picture using, you know, just internet resources and online calculators. Or you can make a pretty rough assessment of, of how you're doing just through a few key pieces of information. And that will be the amount of forestry you've got, the amount of nitrogen fertilizer that you're using and your primary land uses. So how much uh, pasture you've got, how much permanent pasture you've got compared to how much land you're cultivating. And you begin to then get a picture. But I think sometimes the more information you've got, if you're not measuring it, you can't manage it. And it's through measuring it and understanding where your impact is coming from that you can really begin to then um, make a, a, a meaningful difference in how you can do things better. Sure. Tom, we started this talking sort of more generally about the real estate sector before delving deeper into agriculture. So generally, are you, are you optimistic? I think the, the progress so far has been insufficient, but that is a, a government-level strategy, I suppose. And I think there is uh, appetite to move forward, and there's lots of uh, groups and pushing for that. And to kind of link back to your earlier suggestion, this all works in a symbiotic sort of relationship where you have pressures from the likes of Extinction Rebellion and and certain businesses pushing for change. Um, and then um, there's a certain kind of lockstep in with the government that w- will respond to that. So all of the um, emerging policies and announcements um, that you've heard over the last few days in terms of, say, retrofit, example, within homes, they're connected with the uh, response to COVID-19 and this, what um, think tanks and um, influencers have been trying to push for in terms of linking that with um, some sort of green industrial strategy or, or, or basically a, a green stimulus. So there's a kind of these these things work together. Now, my take on it is that um, activity has been essentially kicked into the long grass in terms of policy and that we haven't really grappled with the full scale of the problem yet. However, if you look at the, um, the 2018 um, emissions, global emissions, we know that there's about uh, 10 years left of 2018 level of emissions before we blow the 1.5 carbon budget. So I, my feeling is that governments all around the world have essentially ran out of road to kick it down uh, to kick it further down the road and actually policy will have to be significantly scaled up going forwards in order to make good progress. Thank you both very much for that. That's, it. That's really interesting and, and in fact fascinating and sometimes quite scary stuff actually. Can't go without doing the Savile Standout statistic. Emily's done this a thousand times before. Tom's brand new to it, never done it before. So Tom, we'll let you go first. What's your, uh, what's your Savile Standout statistic for us today? If you look at the emissions associated with um, the, the, well, the fall in emissions associated with COVID-19, um, they, the global emissions declined by about 8% um, compared to um, last year's emissions. Now, in order to stay within 1.5 degrees uh, rise in global temperatures, we need to maintain that sort of fall on, on a year-on-year basis. And not only do we need to do that, we need to do that whilst also delivering better lives for people in the UK and all around the world. 
So what we're facing is a kind of Herculean challenge. Great. Thanks for that. <laughs> That's really put us in our place. Emily, what's your Savile standout stat this time? Your number, about number 40 for you. In comparison to Tom's, it's, it's much more specific um, and, and much less terrifying. But you know, our, our virtual farm uh, it, uh, currently, you know, pretending in Lincolnshire, it currently emits about 1,300 um, kilograms of carbon every year. Now, if we covered it uh, in trees, they took the whole thing out of food production and covered it in trees, it would go from being a, a major net emitter of carbon to sequestering in excess of 2,000 um, kilograms of nitrogen of um, carbon per year. Um, but its gross margin will have declined by a whopping 86% in the process. Yeah, well, and therein is the problem. Thank you both uh, very much for doing that for us. Thank you for your wisdom and for your time. That's it for this episode of Real Estate Insights. If all we've done is whet your appetite for more information and knowledge, you'll find plenty to satisfy you on the research section of the Savills website, savills.co.uk slash research, including that rural land and carbon report that uh, that we've been talking about. There's an immense amount of detail in there that we didn't even begin to touch, so I really recommend... Uh, taking a look at that. If you aren't already a subscriber to Real Estate Insights and would like to become one, then it's easy to do. You just do it through your usual podcast provider. We'd, be lo- we'd love to have you as a regular subscriber. In the meantime, thank you very much for listening. See you next time. This podcast is for general information only and should not be considered professional advice. Savills accepts no liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect or consequential loss arising from the use of, reference to or reliance on this podcast or its content. Savills makes no warranty as to the accuracy of the information in this podcast. This podcast and all copyright in this podcast is the property of Savills and it shall not be used, reproduced or quoted in whole or in part without Savills' prior written consent.